Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is a British-American journalist, broadcaster and author. He's written for a wide range of newspapers and magazines and had a successful dating column in the Sunday Times Style magazine. In 1991, he co-founded the magazine Modern Review, and his first memoir, Starstruck, was published to critical acclaim in 2009. He's currently a columnist for Spectator, World and Perspective. His latest book, Jack and Me, How Not to Live After Loss, is an honest portrayal of losing a child to suicide and the complex and devastating process of grief. He is my old friend, Cosmo Landersman. Welcome to Meet the Writers. Glad to be here, Georgina. It's really, really lovely to have you in to talk about this book, which has been decades in the making, and we'll come back to that. But let's start with your parents, because they were terribly glamorous. Tell us a little about them. Well, I don't know how glamorous they were. They were old bohemian beatniks in America in Greenwich Village who used to hang out with the likes of Jack Kerouac and, you know, Neil Cassidy and that whole world. My dad had an underground magazine. They hung out in Greenwich Village. Then they moved to London in 1964, which was the beginning of Swinging London. They had one phone number here that was Peter Cook, the comedian. And through the Cooks, they met everybody who mattered in London, you know, dinner with the Beatles. And in those days, having dinner with the Beatles, I mean, it doesn't sound much now, but in those days, like, having tea with God. There was nothing, there was no higher thing that you could do in that, in those sort of things. So they had a very interesting life. They had long careers. My mother was a songwriter, wrote a couple of jazz standards. My dad was a publisher, author, man about town. So they had a very interesting life. And I grew up in this kind of bohemian, a wild family. And I was the uptight straight one while everyone else was having a good time. I was sitting and complaining, oh, Pull yourself together, saying to my parents, you know, you're not going to go out dressed like that, are you? For God's sake, <laughs> you know. I, it was very difficult bringing up two parents on my own, is what, is what I always say. Was journalism, therefore, always going to be your natural home? Uh, I got into journalism. Uh, it's the reason I can't get out. There was nothing else I could do. I was too dumb for everything else. And I had a slight flair for, you know, writing. And so that's, you know, where I went. Tell us about setting up the new review. Well, that was it was a crazy idea of uh, Toby Young's. He wanted to have a sort of serious highbrow magazine for low cultures, what we called it. And it was just a bunch of us, uh, young writers and critics. You know, we had a very good stable of people. And we thought, what the hell? It's like one of those Judy Garland movies. Hey, gang, let's put on a musical. But <laughs> hey, gang, let's do a magazine. And it was basically done in uh, Toby Young's bedroom with a computer. You know, it sounded glamorous. It was, a lot, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was very exciting at that time. Now, one of those people was Julie Birchall, who for a time was probably the most famous columnist in Britain. Tell us about your relationship with her. I met Julie at, um, it was Peter York's Sloan Ranger party, I think, at the Travel Club or one of those posh clubs. And I remember looking across the room and seeing these incredible long legs and these big pouty lips and this pale woman with black hair. I thought, oh my God, it's Julie Birchall. I must go talk to her. This was back in the day. This was in the uh, 80s when she was a columnist for The Face magazine which was the magazine, the monocle of its time. And I thought, oh, my God, am I going to talk to her? She's going to hate me. I'm an American. I'm, you know, middle class, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I went up to her and I said, hi, I'm Cosmo Landisman. And she said, oh, I've heard of you. And I thought, oh, my God, the great Julie Birchall's heard of me, you know, my wonderful work, blah, blah, blah. And she said, 
you're that son of the open marriage, <laughs> which is slightly deflating. I thought she was going to say, you're that wonderful writer. But no, there was. Anyway, we had a romance and we got married and we were married for 10 years. And as I remember it, my side of the story is we had a wonderful time. I did. We had lots of laughs and she was great company. And then your son Jack was born. And then my son Jack was born, yes. How and did you feel? I was, you know, when your child is born, it's the big, it's the near, as I say in the book, it's the nearest we all come to a miracle. It's both mundane and miraculous at the same time. And I felt at that time I had everything. I had on one hand a kind of crazy bohemian life with Julie, but we were sort of straight, concerned parents as well. You know, we were nice bourgeois parents. How do you think that affected his early life? Because as you say, you were at home, you were trying to play football in the park with him yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But at night, you were still kind of partying, well, job taking. Party, all, all that stuff happened after he was safely tucked away in bed, never witnessed our excess or his mother's excess. Yeah. Now, as you say, your relationship with Julie didn't last. Famously, she went off with Charlotte Raven and then ended up marrying Charlotte's brother. How did the divorce affect you? I don't think that the, well, I'm not sure the divorce, at first thing, you know, of course I was very sad that the marriage had ended, but, you know, we'd spent 10 years together and we were two journalists in the same house every day. So it's like dog years. It wasn't, technically it was 10 years, but it was actually like 20 years together. And I think she was bored at the end and I was bored. You know, it just, we had, we'd run our course, you know. And so when the divorce happened, I wasn't, dis- I wasn't too distressed. I realized it was time for a change. What were you going to, what could I do? Mm. I was determined to try and be a good ex-husband thing. I didn't want to get into anger and rancor. Let's look now at the book, Jack and Me, How Mm. Not to Live After Loss, in which you interrogate how Jack might have felt about the divorce and that it may or may not have contributed to his eventual suicide. So the book is really, it's really two books because you, after Jack's death, you wrote a book which seemed to be full of anger and all the things you said you didn't want a book to be. Yes, it was a, from the first draft of the book. It was a kind of, it, the trouble was, it was a rant. It was a rage. It was a howl of rage against life, against grief, against Jack, against myself, which is pretty wearing on a reader. And it didn't really have anything into, I was very much reacting against the, what we now call the misery memoir. I didn't want to indulge in that. I didn't want to have nice little platitudes and a, you know, my agent said, the trouble with getting your book published is you don't end everything in a nice pink ribbon. It's not tied up and nice. It didn't give comfort. It was a very a very aggressive book. And then I started to rewrite it as I began to reexamine my relationship with Jack, who I had kind of pushed out of my life. And I wanted him back in my life. And I realized... I had to find a way of having a life after loss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to become defined by his death. I wanted him back. You know, I had his ashes stuck in a cupboard. And I never, you know, I, of course I thought about him. And of course I missed him. And I had days when I was very upset. But I had kind of, well, I thought I had had closure. But I hadn't. I had just cowardly pushed him away. And I decided, no, I want to bring him back. I want the ashes out and I want him back in my life. And despite not wanting to be any kind of self-help guidebook with any Mm. kind of platitudes in it, it is loosely arranged around life lessons. And the Mm. first and really the last and the most important is be kind. I know that was a very difficult thing for me to write because be kind is the great platitude of our era. It's it is such a terrible cliche. It's kind of dumb. It's all those things. But at the end of the day, 
It is the first commandment. It's we've got to look beyond the cliche into the actual core. What makes be kind meaningful is the difficult practice of it. That's the challenge. You separate out your son into Jack and other Jack. Mm. Who was Jack? Jack was a very sweet, loving boy. You know, he was the boy who loved cars and he was kind. And even when he was a bit older, he was very sensitive and thoughtful. He he was a bit of a gentleman. He stuck up for people, women who were, you know, if anybody said nasty things, he'd always stick up for them. He had good, good instincts. The other Jack was a terrible, something happened to him. He was a druggie who stole, who begged who could not take control of his life. You know, there are a lot of Jacks in this world, a lot of very lost young men with a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. And I hear from parents a lot now about, you know, either their children. I mean, Jacks aren't just male, by the way. There's a lot of men who are. But there are young women who are cutting themselves, who are taking drugs, who are screwing up their lives. And a lot of times their parents don't even know. I knew about my son um, well, not at first. That came later. But, you know, I, I had to deal with it as as it unfolded. And he wanted to die. He was very, very frank oh, yeah, about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, And he explains in emails and in conversations why that is so. Mm. What was his reasoning? His reasoning of death was, well, at a certain point, he believed he had, through use of drugs, uh, brain damage. He had destroyed his brain and his capacity for feeling. He would say, I am a living zombie. I have no feelings. I cannot communicate. I cannot speak. He had reached the kind of end of human existence. He was just walking. He was a walking corpse. You'd say, there is no me. There is no me. You don't understand. I'm dead already. And living with a person like that, I mean, is incredibly difficult. He'd trash <laughs> your flat, he'd borrow money. He'd One example you give, actually, it might be quite good to go into, is Jack showering. The Jack shower, yes. I, I write about this in the book where one day he asked me if he could take a shower at my place, and I just sort of freaked out. I said, no, you can't. And I try to explain what a Jack shower is. You know, it's not, sure, go in, go have a shower, and here's a towel. I had to go through, like, various stages of getting him a towel and getting him a shampoo, and he would come and want clothes after. It was a very complex, laborious process. You know, you're trying to write, you're trying to get on with your life, and here's this boy who's too old for this. He should have, he had his own place. Why didn't he take the shower in his place? Mm. I know that's hard to describe, but I wanted him, it was a part of my thing. I wanted Jack to take responsibility for his life. And at one point you remarry and you have another son, Dexter. How difficult was it to have Jack in your home with your new family and how, how did he feel about it? It was extremely difficult. Jack had come out of rehab he was in the Priory for a while. His mom put him in the Priory because he'd had terrible voices. He had voices saying that you're damned and you're going to hell. Uh, he went to the Priory. He got himself sorted out. And he wanted to come back and live with me. And I said, yes, come and live with me for a while. And that wasn't easy. I had a new family. I had a new start in life. And then the old problem of Jack turned up. And I brought him in. And with it, I said, this is not going to work. We'll be, we'll be fighting with, you know, matter of days that we had these terrible rows and fights and it changed the whole atmosphere of the house and I had to ask him to leave. So the book is shocking in its honesty. You talk about how sometimes you feel that maybe you wouldn't even have cared if he died. Yeah, I had moments. I had moments, honestly, where I thought, oh God, if he died, that would, what a fucking relief that would be. And that's, you know, that's a terrible thing, you know, especially after they do it. Uh, But no, they were there and I had to face it. But, I mean, although he seemed determined to die, you didn't really think he would do it. 
And no, I didn't. I, I, it was always a... There were days when I thought it's possible. It, it moved from possible to improbable. There were good reasons to believe he wouldn't do it. Jack always said, I can't bear the idea of dying alone. That's why he's always trying to get me to come with him and be part of the, his suicide. I said, no, I'm not doing that. You know, uh, what do you think I am? And, and there were other days when I thought, oh, my God, maybe he is. You know, maybe I will come back to the flat and he'll, he'll be there hanging at the end of a rope. Or he, you know, because he did one. I remember one day he told me, oh, yeah, yesterday I tried to kill myself here. I said, what, in my flat? You know, don't do that. <laughs> I know it sounds terrible, but I didn't want that shock. When he eventually did do it, yeah. you were on a pleasure cruise. Tell yeah. us about that. Uh, I had been sent on an assignment for the Sunday Times. I was on this ocean liner with five days of joy and hanging out and getting pissed and having fun. And the next morning, I get the message. Uh, I had to phone a friend and she told me that Jack was dead. And yet here you are in this bizarre situation. I know. I know. It was just absolutely. I was at. It's like being at a fun fair and hearing, you know, the worst thing you can. I had to. I remember it was like I'd been hit by. I had been mugged by life, and I had to get back to my room. And it was. I was so wobbly. I mean, I could never find my room anyway. At the best of times, (laughs) on those ships, you know, these massive holes with this giant ship, and. yeah, so I had to just stay in my room and wait and arrange to get back to London. You beat yourself up for being a bad father. But throughout his life, Jack did have access to medical help, to rehab, yeah. to shelter. I mean, you really did everything possible, apart perhaps from telling him enough how much you loved him, you say. Yeah, and that's a big, that's a big uh, mistake. I didn't tell him enough. I mean... Sometimes I wonder, did I tell him, didn't I? You know, it's very hard to remember. I think he knew I loved him. No, my, my big mistake is, if we want to cut to the heart of the matter, I, uh, I don't blame myself for Jack's death because I don't think blame, it's too crude a term. You know, when someone dies in suicide, you know, we read these stories in the newspaper, so-and-so died because of online bullying or because financial ruin or something like that. This is, these are just the top mm. obvious explanations. It's a much deeper, much more complex process. There's a whole set of factors that lead to that particular moment of that particular individual. So I don't blame myself, but I do regret. I have major regrets. And my biggest regret, if you want to know, is that I didn't bring him back home and look after him. You write Every suicide is a murder mystery waiting to be solved. But unlike the classic murder mystery of crime fiction or fact, with a suicide you find the corpse and the killer at the same time. You write that there is seldom a conclusive answer to why, as you've just Mm. gone into. There might be perhaps, you know, financial ruin or whatever. But drugs perhaps did play quite a large part in this. That's not why he, he killed himself. But I believe the drugs had a very, the overall factor in what happened to Jack's mind is through his excessive use first of mushrooms, then of skunk, then of MDHA and acid. And he, yes, that really put him in a mind state where he suffered what is called depersonalization, where you have no feelings and whatever. But what really, I think what, you know, the question we need to ask about suicide is a lot of people have suicidal thoughts, but only a very small number actually execute those thoughts. Mm-hmm. What, what is the criteria? Why? And most suicide literature can't answer that question. We all think if we, you know, give to charities and more mental health care, we can solve that problem. 
but it's it's not so simple as that. I don't. Believe, but I think for me, my explanation for Jack is that, uh, and for lots of kids like Jack, is that he ran out of hope. When you lose the hope, there's nothing left to come back to. There's no why not kill yourself because tomorrow's not going to be any better. It's just more pain. Yeah. It's very hard for us to really understand the pain of people like that. You know, we, yes, we know they're distressed. We know they're unhappy. We don't know a kind of pain where you're prepared to kill yourself. It's not easy to kill yourself. We have natural suicide immune systems that stop us. We have family and love and fear and all these things that stop us from going over that edge. But some people override that mm-hmm. and they can go to the next stage and Jack Jack was one of those because he didn't want to think oh you know maybe tomorrow will be better he didn't believe in a better tomorrow he believed it's just as bad and it's always going to get worse how did his mother deal with his death i don't know we didn't talk a lot she was very devastated by it i really i you know obviously she was just you know devastated as you would expect but more than that i don't know we did, we've never really talked about it You write in the book some wonderful imagined conversations with Jack. Did you find that that came easily? Yeah. It's like Jack's voice kept popping in my head, having Jack looking over my shoulder as I was writing. And I wanted to make a place in the story for Jack to speak. And I hope I, you know, got his voice across and for for the reader to understand what I was up against. I mean, he he can be very funny and I think give some of the book some some of its humour. Absolutely. That that voice felt so, so natural. But uh, as you've just been describing, it really comes across that he did have access to the best care. You clearly did love him. And really, it seems to the reader that there was absolutely nothing you could have done. Well, because Jack didn't really believe in getting better. He didn't believe he could get better. He would, you know, he would go to N.A., for example, and go to one session and think, oh, that's crap. He would go to the therapist and just stay there for six weeks and he'd go, oh, they just want to talk about my childhood. He had no belief that there was any kind of solution that would help him. Uh, Throughout the book, as you've mentioned, you're struggling with the fact of Jack's ashes. You don't want to bring out the urn. You don't want to touch them. Where are the ashes now? The ashes are back on my shelf in the corner of my sitting room. Are you going to scatter them? He said scatter them in the most druggy, horrible part of Camden. (laughs) (laughs) One day I look forward to doing that, yes. (laughs) You write a really, really disturbing description of the state of Jack's body when it was found. And you point out that we have romanticised suicide. We think of poets and writers doing it in a beautiful way. Mm. But that really isn't the reality, is it? No, that's what I felt. You know, a lot of people have written about suicide, but that's the bit we tend to leave out. And that was, for me, one of the most difficult things to write about. You know, the father in me didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go back in the room and see my son that way. But the writer realized I had to, because it's very important that we understand suicide. We, I see it as that there's a kind of normalization of suicide. It's not just the romanticization of suicide, which has always existed pre-internet, you know, the idea of Chatterton and various poets and whatever. It's the normalization as though suicide is the first option. You know, your life goes bad. People say nasty things about you on, you know, on, on social media and you resort to suicide or it's considered a valid human right. And I, and, I, and I question that. I think that's dangerous thinking. I mean, I think one of the most valuable things you may have done for readers of this book is this very graphic description of a, a body in some advanced state of decomposition and, and pointing out that, yes, it isn't this 
beautiful thing where people will sing praises to you afterwards. Yeah. They will mm. remember the maggots. It's ugly and it stinks and it's, that's what it should do. And we should, we should face that head on. Now, you take the piss out of yourself for not running a, a marathon or starting yeah. a foundation or baking cakes for mental health charities. But the book does have a contribution. I mean, I think what you've written may be capable of saving lives. Was that your intention? Well, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be so uh, arrogant to assume that I could actually save lives. But if it does, and it, then great. And if I've helped distressed parents, and a couple of parents have already written to me and said, you know what, this book really woke me up. I have a child that has been very disturbed and I realise I haven't been connecting with them in the right way. So if it does that, great. You know, it, many of us have to... My child, too, has gone through appalling phases. Mm. But at what point, then, do you say, OK, I'm not just going to say, pull yourself out of this. I am sick of having an unresponsive, spoilt person who just does not engage with the world and just lay yourself open and go, I love you, whatever happens. You never know what the best way to behave no, is. No, you don't. There are no certainties. You try. It's trial and error. You know, there were times when I said, I was kept going and thinking, OK, Jack, that's it. I'm finished with you. You've got to sort out your life. It was the jacks of this world. It's like banging your head on a brick wall. You know, you can't get them to change. You can't get them to make even an effort to get their life together. And it's very exhausting. It's exhausting being around people like that. It mm. drains you of your energy. It just, ugh, I can't. And there are other days when I would say, you know what, this whole I give up, you're on your own, is crap. You know, you try the tough love. You tie the tough love approach where you say, well, if you're going to get stoned and you miss your appointment and you don't get your welfare check and you don't have any money, tough. You made that choice. You go to somebody's house. They give you a place to stay. You fuck around. You make a mess. They throw you out. That's, you know. And the tough love is the most tough person that it's most tough for is the parent. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to step aside and watch your kids screw up their life. How Try it. It's hard. How are you now? I, I'm much better. I mean, I'm really, I think the book helped me out a lot more in understanding. I'm much more forgiving of myself. I don't think I beat myself up quite as much as I used to. I have my moments, you know. But uh, no, I think it's, it's been helpful to me. And um, I also think, I'd like to think about the book. I just want to say this one thing, that it would appeal and to people who don't have problem children or people who are not particularly interested in suicide. I would like to think it's a good enough story that anyone could pick it up and find something interesting or funny or whatever. And, you know, I'm not trying to write a misery memoir or whatever or, or, or those type of things. I want to write, tell a good story. And I think it's the sort of story of our time. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's beautifully written. I think it's funny. It also goes into sort of things like, um, for instance, you wrote this dating column for years. Yeah. And I, I kind of love the juxtaposition of your, your kind of dates. Also, your enormous, when this happens, this terrible tragedy happens, your enormous drive for sex. <laughs> Where does that come from? Um, yeah, that was one of the most difficult sections to write about in the book. And in the first draft, it put off a lot of people, particularly younger women, young readers at, at publishing houses. To this day, I don't know where it came from, honestly. I don't know. It's about trying to reconnect birth. There are all sort of psychological reasons and stuff like that. I don't know. But you know what? 
other men have told me and other people have told me about this suddenly appear. We don't talk about it mm-hmm. because it doesn't fit our image of the uh, of what the etiquette or the demands of grief are. Grief demands, you know, we're, that we're solemn, that we're stoical, that we're tearful. And here I am, this sort of horny old guy, and it's just ridiculous. I, I recognize how I was ashamed. I was ashamed of these desires, but people were very understanding of it. And I thought, you know, should I take this section out of the book? And I uh, said, no, this is the reality of grief for some people, and mm. someone's got to say it. In the midst of death is life, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, well. yeah. Your son, Dexter. Yes. How is he doing? Uh, I don't talk about Dexter because Dexter is a very private person and he doesn't really want me to write articles or to talk about them, so I don't really deal with Dexter issues is the mm-hmm. way I play it. But you are writing a lot at the moment. I'm, every time I pick up anything, there is Cosmo Landersman writing again and it feels like your career has been reinvigorated. Uh, well, <laughs> I hope so. Um, it's, uh, well, you know, because I'm trying to promote the book and I'm getting asked to write about this particular topic. You know, I've gone from uh, the dating disasters to uh, death by suicide, which is, is quite a change. Uh, this won't last, you know, This I think I've gone as far as I can on this particular topic. Mm-hmm. And you're still writing about dating, though. How's it going? I, yeah, <laughs> I still, yeah, well, I'm not particularly interested in writing about dating or talking about my romantic life. However, commissioning editors seem to think that it's of interest to their readers. Well, I think it is kind of, you know, older people, you know, I'm an older guy and we don't really get a voice in the world of dating that much, so I guess I'm the go-to older guy dating voice. Well, listeners, he's gorgeous, he's not that old. <laughs> <laughs> he's very talented and he's single. Hey, right. <laughs> but but is that something that, that, that you think about when, when you, you're in your, your late 60s now and, and, mm. and you're thinking about the rest of your life and, and is having a partner an important part yes. I always say I'm, I'm in between wives and that I know she's out there. We're actually married. Our souls are married. I just have to find her. Absolutely. Cosmo, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you. It's, it's tell, been, me, yeah. tell me what's next. I don't know. <laughs> I honestly have no idea. I, I will get married and live happily ever after. I hope that's so. <laughs> Thank you. Cosmo Landersman and his wonderful, wonderful book, Jack and Me, How Not to Live After Loss. And it's published by the Black Spring Press Group. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.